I'm going to be reading from 1 Kings chapter 3. As you find that, you can stand, 1 Kings 3, 1 to 5. Then King Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. We'll pray. God, again, we're just so grateful for what you have given us in Christ Jesus that we've been made complete and lavished with every blessing in the heavenly places, that you could not possibly give us more than you have in Jesus. We thank you, God, for your calling upon our lives and for this privilege to gather together in the name of Jesus. And I ask that you would speak to us and that our hearts, Lord, would respond in faith and obedience to you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I appreciate Connor standing in for me last week. Um, Patsy and John and I were in Austria for a Torchbearer conference, an international delegates conference. Somebody had to do it, so um, we were... Yeah, it's, it's just um, almost sinfully beautiful over there in Austria, at least in the summertime. Yeah, it was wonderful, beautiful. Um, it just seems that no, at, no matter where I go, um, uh, I don't blend in. Um, you know, you'd like to be able to go to Austria and just walk down the street and just be taken for a local, but I'm, I'm, I'm not. I don't know why. I think if, even if I were to buy Lederhosen, I would not be taken as a local. Um, there is in all of us um, a desire to just fit in and be accepted. I believe it's what God put in our hearts. And we know as Christians we have to find that acceptance um, only really in Christ. And that this world is never going to give us what we have already in Jesus. We are to live in the world, but we are not to be of the world. And that's a constant battle and balance that we seek. Living in this world engaged with this world, but not becoming like the world. I wish that the Bible told us exactly what that looked like. Every culture is different, and in some cultures, what it to be engaged, to be like that culture um, as a Christian is not an option. But there are other things where it's not a problem, because it's just, it's a neutral area. But we don't have that mapped out for us. Solomon faced a similar thing, to live in this world and yet to be distinct from it. And when we come to this chapter, um, we can't forget that the last statement of chapter 2 
was that the kingdom was firmly established in the hands of Solomon. That's very important for what we just read. Because when chapter 3 starts out, the first thing is that Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh. That was forbidden. So this was an area where it was like the culture. All around the world, heads of state would form marriage alliance with other heads of state by giving their children in marriage to one another. That was the best way you could form a peace treaty. That was the best way that you could ensure that a nation would not attack you if your son or daughter was married to the son and daughter of another king. So this was for the purpose of securing the security of Israel. But Israel is already secure. So it wasn't needed. He did it because everyone else did it. Problem is, this is one area where God has spoken. And God has said that Israel was not to form covenants with the people of the land who did not know the Lord. So we assume that if that meant the people of Canaan, then it also extended to other people as well. That if they did not know the Lord, then they were not to form these kinds of alliances. They were trusting in the alliance rather than trusting in God. And God had forbidden it. They were substituting men for God. God didn't say that they can't have an army. In fact, they were to have a standing army. That was not the problem. But they were forbidden from, through their own efforts, trying to secure peace through those who don't even know God. There's so much application here. We can do the same thing when we are trying to ingratiate ourselves to the world, become friends of the world, and really, the bottom line at the heart motivation often is not that we're trying to reach the world. We just don't want to be rejected by the world. We want to get along with the world. We want to be one with the world. We don't really want to stand out and be different. But there are areas where God has said, come apart. Do not be in association with. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, that you are not your own. You have been purchased with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he spoke similarly and said, You are light and they are darkness. What the fellowship does light and darkness have? Come apart. Come and, and separate yourself from them. And so this is a theme that runs right through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that we are to live in the world, but not be like the world. No one would have argued with Solomon. No one would have raised an objection because what he did was culturally acceptable. But does it survive the scrutiny of God? And the answer is no. And this is where many times we have to say, you know, I understand what you're saying. This is not a problem to the world. This is not maybe even a problem to the Christian community. But I have to answer to God. And God has spoken. 
on this particular issue. And yes, it's going to make me look different and it may cause me to be rejected by the world and rejected by the Christian community. But when God has spoken, we must heed. So he marries the daughter of Pharaoh. There is no indication that she was a believer. I have to um, uh, acknowledge that, that God cares about who we marry. There's no mention here that he loved this woman, and even if he did, that would not have excused it. God has said, no foreign marriages. Why? Well, one reason is because God said, if you do this, it will corrupt your children. It is less likely that your children will walk with God when one or the other of the parents does not walk with God. And if it's the father who is the unbeliever, and God said specifically about this, Exodus 34, 12 to 16, if it is the father who does not know the Lord, then God says you will cause your children to turn away from me. It will corrupt the spiritual life of your children. Another reason that it was wrong is not just because of the practical consequences it could have upon future generations, but because when a believer and an unbeliever marry each other, they are stating a lie by their actions. They are saying by their actions that light and darkness can fellowship together, and that is a lie. There is no way. There is no union spiritually between light and darkness, between the saved and the unsaved. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Just so you know, this is not just an Old Testament concept. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm in 1 Corinthians. That's why it doesn't look right. And picking it up in verse 11. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained by your own affections. Now in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. So what is the restraint by their own affections? Verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? None. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Did you hear that? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And the assumed answer is nothing. How can you say that? Especially if you're a young person who is contemplating marrying an unbeliever, and you look at this person and you go, we've got everything in common, Right? We like the same things, we read the same books, we like this vacation the same way. We have the same interests right down the line. How can you possibly say that the believer and the unbeliever have nothing in common? I have everything in common. This is my soulmate. Your identity as a Christian is Jesus Christ. And if you do not have Christ in common, you have nothing in common. That's what Paul is saying. You are alive spiritually, and that person is dead spiritually. And there is no commonality between life and death. 
They have nothing in common. No commonality between light and darkness. All the things that you may have in common now are peripheral and surface and subject to change. But Christ, that will never change. Never change. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. The unsaved person is not. As God said, I will dwell in them. He does not dwell in the unbeliever. And walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul addresses the widow, very clearly he says she is free to marry whomever she wishes, but then only in the Lord. A mixed faith marriage represents something that is not true. And that is a large reason why God is against it. Because marriage has been designed by God to be a picture of two things. One, the Trinity itself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are one. And also a picture of Christ's union with the church. And they are one. And God cannot be one with what is unlike Himself. He cannot. This is why to be made one with God, He has to give us His nature first. And we have all become partakers of the divine nature. And having been, become, having been made a partaker of His nature, He can wed Himself to us. We are no longer darkness when we receive Christ, but we are the light of this world. And the one who is the light of the world can join himself, wed himself to us because we share the same nature. A homosexual marriage, even if it were to be among Christians, is also a lie. Because the union between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a union of oneness with diversity. And the union between Christ and the church is a union of oneness and diversity. And so God has designed that a marriage between, be between a man and a woman. Diverse, separate, distinct, male and female. And the mystery that God can take what is so different and make them one is a mystery that, is, that invokes an image of the Trinity itself and of Christ's union with the church. It needs to be said that marriage is not for us. It is ultimately a representation of what is true of God and the church. So these marriages that Solomon is entering into are a false representation, a spiritual lie concerning unity with God and unity within the Trinity. Marriage is, 
has been made to benefit us, but it is ultimately about God. It is not ultimately about our fulfillment. Whatever the need is, for Solomon it was a marriage for the sake of security. False motivation. God is our security. For others, it would be a marriage for the sake of love. Wrong reason to get married. God is love. And He is the lover of our souls. There's no place in Scripture that says that we get married because of love and that justifies it. We'll see that more when we come to the end of Solomon's life. Marriage is not about our fulfillment. And think about it. Love is about another person's fulfillment. So when I make marriage about my fulfillment, I'm not loving. Because love gives itself for another person. It is not about us. And when we make it about us, we've redefined what marriage is. Marriage is ultimately about God being imaged in our humanity. Mixed faith marriages are still forbidden today. We all know probably many couples, Christian couples, where one or the other is not saved. Sometimes that happens because two unbelievers go into a marriage, which is permitted by God, obviously. One becomes a Christian, and the other never comes to faith. That can happen. But in my limited experience, most of the folks that I know who are in a mixed faith marriage, it started out that way. And typically it's the woman who knowingly and willingly married an unbelieving man. Not always, but in the majority of cases I know, it's the woman who married the unbelieving man and not the other way around. Of all the mixed faith marriages I know, I think it would be accurate to say not a single one of them would advise a young person to do what they have done. And they love their husbands, they love their wives, and they've been faithful. We had one dear saint in this church married for over 60 years to an unbelieving man. She's with the Lord now, and we're still praying for his salvation. She would have been the first if she were here to say, because she's told me personally, never do what she had done. And she was faithful and loving to her husband for over 60 years. It is not God's design. And either we trust God or we trust our own efforts. This is what Solomon's doing. He's not trusting God. He knows what God has said. And he's saying, but... There is no but. But. There is no but. I have a dear friend that she was engaged to an unbliever. She sent um, me and Patsy an invitation to her wedding. And so I, I spoke to her dad. I've known her since her birth. And he was not at all in favor of it. He was struggling with that whether even to go to the wedding. And I said, would it be all right with you if I wrote to her about our reservations? And he said, please do. 
And I did. And I tried to make the letter as gentle and gracious and loving as I could. Didn't cite any scripture whatsoever because I thought she's probably not in a place where she wants to hear scripture. But I did tell her, life is full of tragedy. Life is full of painful, painful experiences. And there is no greater loneliness than sharing a bed with a man that you can't pray with when the tragedies of life come. There is a greater loneliness than being single. And that is the loneliness of sharing a bed with a man you cannot pray with. Why would you want that? She didn't respond well. But a few months later she wrote and just acknowledged her rebellion and her sin and asked for forgiveness for how she had treated me in response to that letter. Do not think, if you're in this place of dating an unbeliever, considering marrying an unbeliever, do not think that God is telling you that it is okay. If you're thinking that way, you are deceived. God has spoken, and this is nothing to pray about. He has already said, no, you cannot marry an unbeliever. No. The second thing Solomon was doing was sacrificing on the high places, verse 2. The people were still sacrificing on the high places. The people. <laughs> well, you've got to go along with the people. Verse 3. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. David didn't do that. And Solomon didn't need to do it either. Well, what's the problem with the high place? I mean, I just came out of, this, out of the Austrian Alps. <laughs> They're pretty nice. Well, one is the theology. And the theology was the higher in elevation you are, the closer to God you are. Wouldn't that be nice? Except for us that live in Texas, because there's not a lot of high elevations. So we don't have a prayer. I tease and I, when I go around to the different torchbearer students at schools and I say, you know, man, when I'm in Estes Park, Colorado or, or Winter Park, Colorado, boy, they're, they're at seven, 8,000 feet elevation. And I say, I'm going to be glowing when I go back home. I mean, and you guys are so spiritual because you're so high. His hill, we're only at 1,500 feet elevation. It's hard to pray at his hill. But then I go to Cape and Ray Harbor in Canada, it's on an island, and they're like at 10 feet elevation. And I don't even know how they can have a Bible school here. They're so far away from God. But it's ridiculous. One writer said, whether you're standing on an alp or in the bottom of a mine shaft, you are no closer or further away from God. He is omnipresent. And what that means is, there are no holy sites. There are no places that are more spiritual than other places. God is everywhere. And there is no one location that is more spiritual than another. That is pure pagan superstition. So God hates the high places first because of the bad theology. But he also hated it because of the practice that took place on the high places. Because see, their theology not only told them they were closer to God, but their theology also told them that God is 
not loving. In fact, you could say he's indifferent. He just doesn't care a whole lot. He's got all of his other things to do. In fact, there are thousands, maybe millions of gods, and they're just kind of doing their own thing. And so, but your prosperity is dependent upon them. And so you're going to have rain. You, gotta, you're gonna, you have to have rain to have prosperity. And the only way to have rain is to make those gods happy. And like we are all guilty of doing, we create gods in our own image. And even the one true God, we want him to be what we want him to be and not what he is. And they were the same. And so they came to the conclusion that the way to make God happy and to bring fertility to the earth was to be engaged in sexual activity on these high places and somehow that would make the gods happy and they would bring fertility to the earth. It was vile and gross. No wonder God said, have nothing to do with the high places. But the people were still sacrificing on the high places. Were they involved in all the sexual immorality? It doesn't seem to be. But would an outsider really have seen any distinctiveness? No. And God has spoken to this. No matter how many other people in your community are saying it is okay, God has said no. And that's enough. More than one Christian saint has said that God, in putting his mark on you as an individual, is going to forbid you from doing things that are perfectly permissible to other Christians. Because it's God's way of saying, you are mine. You answer to me. And I just wonder, have we lost all consciousness of that? That we respond to God and His Word. And there is a generalized, this is what God wants from the Christian. I get it. But there is also a particular will that God has for each individual saint. And I'm not talking about whether you're a preacher or whether you're what. I'm not talking vocationally. But I mean just in your personal relationship with God, and God says, for you, no. And it's not that God's saying this is sin for everybody, but He's saying it is not for you. I know that the Lord has done that in my life. And there is no explanation, not scriptural, Scripture's not saying I can't, but I know in my heart before God, God is saying no. Is that enough? Or do we argue with God and say, but God, all the people, the Christian people are doing this. And we hear silence from God. He won't be argued with. He's already spoken. For you, no. So Solomon is still sacrificing on the high places, but he loves the Lord. Do you get what's going on here? He's marrying the wrong women, women who aren't even of the same faith, 
and he's worshiping in the wrong places. Marriage and worship are two of the big things in the Christian life. And he's getting them both wrong. But he loves God. How many times we hear people say, it's just all about love. Just came back from the Torchbearer Delegates meeting, and I so, so appreciated the loving fellowship among those 60 or 70 people that were there. Just such a blessing. But it's not all about love. It's also about truth. Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. And I get it. You can love God, and we should, we should get it. This is not saying that a person does not love God when he marries, willfully marries the wrong person. Willfully worships in the wrong way. You cannot jump to the conclusion that that person does not love God. Because Solomon loved God. God says so. But in two major areas of his life, he is not lined up with God in his word. Well, what a difference does it make? Well, Solomon's heart is going to be turned away from God and he's going to become an idolater. And for at least the next 300 years, Israel is going to be impacted by the decisions that he made. It made all the difference. And the amazing thing is in verse 5, after marrying the wrong women and worshiping in the wrong places, in Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, ask what you wish me to give you. <laughs> what is going on? Well, God doesn't care who we marry. God doesn't care how we worship. Nope, wrong conclusion. Well, then why is God saying, after doing the, these wrong things, why is God saying, ask whatever you wish? Solomon's won the lottery. Jesus said in John 15, 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. In John 15, 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So we've been given the same blank check. Ask, and I will give it. Did Jesus promise us that we can ask whatever we wish and he would do it because he is pleased with us? Because we have merited his favor? Or because he's good. This blank check that Solomon has just received, you could take it as God is pleased. But I think that would be a mistake. I think we should take it as God is gracious and God is good. And despite how we live, God is good. He gives rain to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. You see, this is so important because it's the pagans, remember, that go, why do they go to the high places? Because they're seeking prosperity. They're seeking fertility. They think that they have to do certain things to get the gods to do their bidding. 
And this is a direct refutation of that. God is not that kind of God. You can do the wrong things and still God is good and gracious. He is not the God of the pagans. That's the lesson here. He is good because he is good. He is favorable because he is love. And we don't have to work to get his attention, somehow to make him incline himself toward us. He is by nature inclined to us because God is by nature love. He is not like the pagans, gods who only answer favorably when, they, when we have done enough to warrant their good pleasure. God blesses us and he loves us because God is good and God is love. What would we have asked for? God appears to you in a dream and says, you can have anything you want. This is good what Solomon did. Verse 7, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, and yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or how to come in. And thy servant in the midst, is the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who cannot be numbered. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of thine? This is super. Humility, dependence, recognizing that God is the only one who can do this is tremendous. So even though he's marrying the wrong women, worshiping in the wrong places, he loves God and God offers him this, his first thought is not for himself. His first thought is that he needs to serve these people well and he doesn't have the ability, the enabling to do what God has called him to do. And he recognizes and just, again, great humility, I am but a little child and he's not, he's a grown man. Solomon was married, other than to the daughter of Pharaoh, to another woman and already had a one-year-old son when this takes place. He's not a little boy. But he looks within himself and goes, I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or how to come in. I can remember when we first moved to Bernie and my folks lived over here off Rosewood and, and the yard was just full of fire ants. And we just, we did everything we could to try and, and burn those things out because we were, my brothers and I were all a bit pyromaniacs. And, and we would just soak those things in gas and light them and stir them and, and they just didn't kill them. And, you know, they're, they're just such a nuisance, just mounds of dirt everywhere, those fire ant mounds. And, and so, you know, then the, the, the grandkids started coming along. And boy, you just, you just get a two-year-old walking around out there and two-year-old sees dirt and walks up to it and stands on it and stomps on it and kicks it. And thousands of fire ants run up his legs and start stinging him and he doesn't even get out of the ant bed. And you're going, what is wrong with this child? And then every one of those nephews and nieces and nephews do the same thing and you go, God, do none of these children have brains? I mean, is there something wrong genetically with the McCall family that none of the kids know how to get out of fire? But see, this is what Paul, is, this is what Solomon is saying about himself. I am like that kind of child. To put it in our culture, I am like a kid that doesn't know how to get out of the fire ants. 
I am just a helpless child, God. I need you. And what does it say? God was pleased, verse 10. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. So yes, sometimes God blesses us because God is pleased with us. But we can always say God blesses because God is good. Do you catch what Solomon's saying here? You made me king, but that doesn't make me able. You made me king, but that does not make me adequate. Exactly. And I've come to believe there is no responsibility or relationship which you have, which God has made you adequate for. Zero. He made you, and you can fill in the blank. He made you mom. He made you dad. He made you brother. He made you sister, roommate, employer, employee. But he did not make you adequate. Our adequacy, sufficiency, comes from Christ alone. And this is by his design so that we not depend upon ourselves, but we live every moment of every day in dependence upon Him. A friend of mine recently observed that as children come into this world, they come in dependent and they grow in independence. But a Christian is to grow in dependence, not in independence. I remember the time that God just moved a mountain and made me an RA my senior year in college. Should have never happened. I applied for it, was turned down because the dean of men said, we don't hire guys like you. Well, what does that mean? He says, well, you need to be 25 and you're not. You need to be former military, you're not. And you need to be a grad student and you're in the undergrad school. So you don't, you're not eligible. But I felt like God wanted me to apply, so I did. And I left the consequences in his hands and so it was good, fine. I didn't get it. I just did what God told me to do. Halfway through the summer, I got a phone call from the school and they said, hey, one of the 25-year-old mil former military grad students has dropped out, and we want you to fill the place. It was the first time in the school's history they had hired somebody to be an RA who didn't meet those criteria. And so when I got to campus early and everybody else started moving into the dorm, two-floor dorm with about 65, 66 students in it, first question everybody's asking is, who is the RA? And I was saying, me. And they were laughing. They go, oh, you're so funny. You're not the RA. Who's the RA? I go, no, really, it's me. It didn't go so well. Who knew? And before I went to bed that night, probably 10 o'clock or so, boom, 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 boom. Somebody is just beating my door down. Open up my door. Biggest guy in the dorm is standing there. Fills up the whole doorway. Frankenstein. And it's like lightning is flashing at the same time. And he is just... And he's just giving me the what for. You are so full of it, man. You're nothing. You think you're something. And he is just all but cussing me out. And then when he's done with me, he reaches in and grabs my doorknob and slams my own door shut on me. And I'm, my knees are like jello. And I just, just wobble over to my bed and I fell down on my knees next to the bed and I fell across the bed, and I just start crying. Oh, God, it's the first day, and I've got a whole year ahead of me. What have you done? 
It is like I had an out-of-body experience, and I looked at myself and said, I am so pathetic. <laughs> and I started laughing. I honestly did. I'm just laughing. I'm going, oh, I'm such a loser. And, you know, and I'm just going, God, it's a free you look at me. And I, and I just said, okay, God, you did this. You did everything to put me in this position. And it is obvious that I am not qualified for it. I'm just, I'm never, I hope I never forget those words of Russell Kelfer. If God is using you, it's because he could not find anyone else less qualified. <laughs> and that's so true. Why is God, does God have Solomon in this position? Because he is the least qualified. He is the least able to do it. And Solomon, to his credit, recognizes it. And I recognized it that night. And I just started laughing. I said, God, it's your, you got to do it. And I went to bed and slept like a baby. Frankenstein wasn't sleeping like a baby. I found out the next morning. Knock, knock, knock. Okay, open up my door. Frankenstein's back. Oh, my word. Whole different attitude. While I'd been sleeping all night, God had been beating him up. And he just said, Charlie, I'm so sorry. You're a good guy. I was just jealous. And I just, I don't know what came over me. Please forgive me for how I treated you. And I get to close my own door this time. My knees were just as wobbly as the night before. And I went over and fell down next to my bed and draped across it. And this time I'm saying, thank you for the miracle I just witnessed. God did it. And the whole year was just tremendous. Of, of just, just understanding it is so difficult. I don't know why it's so difficult for us to live each day in the acknowledgement, I can not. I can do nothing apart from him. But God is pleased when we yield our lives to the only one who is sufficient. Do we truly believe in the sufficiency of God and his word? He's marrying the wrong women because he doesn't believe in the sufficiency of God. But when it comes to his role as king, judging the people, and he says, God, I can't do this. Life and death decisions are going to be before, brought before me. Who is adequate for this? Exactly. Only God. So whatever role, whatever responsibility, whatever relationship you have, you can take it to the bank. God did not provide the ability. He wants you to come to him with a humble, dependent heart every moment of every day, recognizing he is your ability. And if he doesn't show up, it's not going to happen. God was pleased. And he told Solomon, because you've asked for this thing and you've not asked for yourself, for yourself, you see, because this was not about himself when he asked for wisdom. You have not asked for yourself long life, nor have you asked for the riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has not been one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I've also given you what you've not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there will not be among any of the kings like you all your days. Wow. And then verse 15, and then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Bummer. See, that's the, that's the point here. It was a dream. Verse 5, 
in a dream, God appeared to him. Verse 15, it was a dream. Why is that being emphasized? Because I believe Solomon woke up the next morning and did not feel wise. He knew he'd had a dream. But he didn't start thinking like Einstein. Whatever that means, I don't know. He had to make a faith decision. God spoke to me. And act in faith upon what he knew to be true. As we all do. I'll develop that more next Sunday. The main thing I wanted to communicate here today is the goodness and grace of God. We are the recipients, the bountiful recipients of the grace of God. God has lavished His grace upon us. I'll never forget Ramesh Richard, um, theologian from India that used to teach at Dallas Seminary. He came back from a trip to India one time and very, very powerfully he said, I used to think that Christians were the most blessed people on the earth. I no longer think that. He said, I used to think that Americans were the most blessed people on earth. He goes, I no longer think that. He goes, I now believe that it's American Christians that are most blessed people on earth. It's a powerful message. We are the Solomons of this world. But just because God has blessed us does not mean that we're doing everything right. We need to get that through our heads. He blesses because He is good and gracious. And we don't deserve it. Marrying the wrong women, worshiping the wrong... These are huge, huge things. Huge. And nonetheless, God comes to him and says, ask what you wish. And Jesus has said to us, ask what you wish. And it's not because he's necessarily pleased with everything in our lives. It's because he is a good God. And it should humble us to recognize that we can do nothing apart from him. I'll close this in prayer. God, thank you so much for your matchless grace toward us. Could never be measured and never be deserved. It is purely because of who you are. I pray that we would live thankful, humble lives in light of all that you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen.